Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have every reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So I've given today's message the title, The Joy of Knowing Christ as Lord. And when I first began to preach, um, my minister at the time gave me a little bit of a hint. He said, always try and sum up the main thrust of the message in, in a one sentence. And I've always tried to do that for the last 25 years. I don't always succeed, um, particularly when sometimes we might be preaching on a whole chapter or even more of the Bible. Um, but I've been doing that for the last 25 years. And this week, as I was reading and preparing for the message, I very nearly missed a key element of today's reading, and that's why I made sure I got it into the, into the one-sentence title. You see, the very first sentence says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And rejoicing's pretty important, isn't it? But I actually skipped over that. And I think what happened for me is, is often we, we think of phrases like rejoice in the Lord or, or alleluia or amen, especially if it's accompanied with a question mark, amen, yeah, amen. Yeah, but we often only use these things that they just become cliches or religious sounding filler that preachers and worship leaders use to try and fill silence while they're trying to collect their thoughts before they move on. Amen, right? But... But when Paul says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, by the way, I'm not sure why he says finally, because it's not finally. Um, he's only about halfway through his letter. Um, but it just shows he's a typical preacher, eh? They, they say finally, and then four points, and, and, and 30 minutes later, they're still going. Um, those dastardly preachers. But, but when Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, what he's doing is he's reminding us that all of what follows, what he's about to tell us, um, gives us reason to rejoice. 
And with what does follow, it's not just, it, 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 it's not just a simplistic reason to rejoice. The depth of theology that Paul uses here reveals that it's no temporary circumstantial happiness that he's talking about. It's an eternal joy. It's the joy of knowing Christ. It's a joy that overwhelms the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And it's a joy that has less to do with how, how I'm feeling and more to do about my relationship with Jesus. And so he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. That's a weird statement. That's a weird statement. He's about to repeat himself and he has no trouble with repeating himself. Still sounds like a preacher, doesn't he? Um, but he, then he says, it's safe for you, Lord, if I do repeat myself. It's just a weird statement. And this is what I think he means. Okay, so is it something that he's written to them before, right? He's about to repeat himself. Has he written to them before or, or is it something that he's written to another church or is it something that he's warned them about when he was with them in person? Well, it was probably all free. So, for example, at the moment with COVID-19, I personally am sick to death of the warnings and all the warning signs that, that we have to put up everywhere. I mean, who reads them anymore? Did anybody read the signs we put up? We put a lot of trouble into putting those signs up this morning. Did anyone read them? That confirms my suspicion. <laughs> but you see, for most of us, it's not such a worry. We just ignore them and, and walk past. But if we're responsible for, for running a business or running a sporting club, so for me, I can put my pistol club hat on and we've got to put all these signs up at the pistol club. I can put my church hat on. We've got to put, put up all these signs at the church. For any of you running a business, you have to have all the signs up at your business. And of course, they're at the shopping centres when you go and whatnot. You see, although hardly anybody's reading them anymore, and probably some people have never read them, we are obligated, it is our duty of care to warn people. And when people don't adhere to social distancing and hand-washing rules, that increases the incidences and the severity of the outbreaks. And so it might be a tiny little bit of effort, but really it's, it's not really trouble. It might annoy us having to do it, but it's not really any trouble to put these signs up. And it's safe for you guys. It's not hurting you, is it, by having those up? So it's not going to hurt us having them there. Paul was trying to control an epidemic in the early church. It was an epidemic that threatened to destroy the church. It had its, at its heart a completely wrong understanding of the gospel. And so Paul made it his practice to often warn churches to stand again this false teaching that was going, coming into the churches. Sometimes he would write a letter to a church to warn them. A, a key example of this would be the letter that we read to the church in Galatia. We have it in our Bibles as Galatians. Um, or he would visit a church. And, and so it was a false teaching that was so common. It was so rampant that even a healthy church such as Philippi, well, he felt that it was his duty to warn them. It wasn't an issue with them, but he felt it was his duty to warn them. 
And that's the way it is with a lot of what we read in the scriptures. You know, some people might, be, might feel when we're reading something in the scriptures, well, this isn't really relevant for me. This isn't an issue that I'm dealing with at the moment. Why, why would that dastardly preacher be spending time on this in his message today? Well, it's because as disciples of Jesus, as we follow him, we're going to encounter all sorts of things that are going to try and divert us from the gospel. And what you mightn't be encountering today might be something that you need to be prepared for to encounter it tomorrow. And so that when you do encounter it, you're not going to be misdirected by it and you're going to be warned, forewarned, okay, I have to watch out for this. All right, so although this heresy, although this false teaching, this ungodly diversion wasn't affecting the Philippian church at the time, it was no trouble for Paul to repeat the warning that he often repeated to the various churches at various times and that it would help to keep the Philippian church safe. So what was this terrible heresy? Um, it, he's pretty harsh. He's very cutting with what he says, pardon the pun. He describes those who are preaching and he says, look out for the do dogs, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Ooh, sounds like some kind of evil, body-cutting, occultish behaviour. No, the issue was circumcision. One of the biggest issues that the early church had to deal with was how the Christian church related to Judaism. You see, when Jesus came... He came first and foremost for the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. You know, a lot of people would probably go, oh, Jesus was a Jew. No, he wasn't, was a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. In fact, Jesus didn't only come for the Jews, he came for the whole of Israel. But the promises of God that were at one time just for the people of Israel, in Christ, include people of all nations. And I'm pretty sure that most of us here today aren't Jewish. Um, and by the grace of God, isn't this good news that in Christ, we are accepted. In Christ, people of every race and people of every tongue can be saved and become children of God. Does anyone find that good news? Good, good, I'm seeing some nodding of some heads and, and a few murmurs of agreement. Now, for us today, circumcision is a medical procedure. A, a little piece of skin, the foreskin of a male, which is sometimes prone to infection, is cut off to reduce the possibility of infection. But for the Jew, circumcision was the mark. Right? So for you cattlemen amongst you, think of a brand. For the sheep man amongst you, think of, of the earmark, right? Circumcision was the mark or the brand which distinguished the Jew from the Gentile, right? So the Gentile is simply somebody who's not a Jew. It was part of the covenant that, that God had made with the people of Israel. Right from the time of Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham that the Lord our God would be God to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants, and that they would be his people. And the sign of this covenant was circumcision. 
You can read about it in Genesis chapter 17, right back in the first book of the Bible. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is, sorry, or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. All right, so for the Jew, it was very clear. This is the sign that you are one of God's people. But how did that apply to the Christian church? Jesus came first for the Jews. But you know what happened? They crucified him. And even after his resurrection, he was largely rejected by the Jews. And, and the Jews were the ones who persecuted the early church. And so as these Christians were persecuted, they found they had to flee Jerusalem. And if they were being persecuted by the Jews, where did they flee to? They fled to the land of the Gentiles where there were no Jews or very few Jews. And of course, as they went, they took the gospel with them. And everywhere they went, they took the gospel with them and they preached the gospel. And guess what happened? In the land of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, when the Gentiles heard the gospel being preached, many believed and they turned to Jesus, which then created a bit of an issue. All right? To belong to the God of the Jew, shouldn't the Gentile have to become a Jew? And if circumcision was the mark of being a Jew, if that was the mark of belonging to God, shouldn't these Gentile Christians also be circumcised? You can see why it would have been a live issue for them in the day. This is something that Paul himself had to grapple with because as we're going to see shortly, Paul was a Jew through and through. But it's the experience of the Apostle Peter, which we can read about in Acts chapter 10 and 11. All right, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this now, but if you want to grasp more about how, how this all went down, go back home and read Acts chapters 10 and 11. Or if you want to, you can go back to, to one of our past messages on it. Um, back in 2015, we covered this. So just go to www.bushdisciples.church, click on sermons, and then scroll down the table until you find Acts chapters 10 and 11. But through a miracle of God, Peter was led to go to Caesarea, which was Gentile country, and he knew that God was telling him to preach to the Gentiles, and so he did. And while he was preaching the gospel, um, they heard it, they believed it, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were given the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and it was, they could see it happen. It was instantaneous. Some of them were speaking in other languages that they'd never learned. They were all praising God. It was a movement of the Holy Spirit. And the lesson that Peter learned from that is what's the brand, what's the mark of being a Christian? Is it being circumcised? No, because these ones weren't circumcised. Is it being baptised? No, they hadn't even been baptised. What's the mark of being that you are 
a disciple of Jesus? What's the mark that you're a Christian, that you're saved? It's being filled with the Holy Spirit. Am I a child of God? Well, I need to ask myself the question, is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Does my life look more like I'm living by the flesh or does my life look more like I'm living by the Spirit of God? You see, you can circumcise a monkey. Oh, actually, I don't know about that. I don't know about the anatomy of a monkey. Um, bad example. Anybody can get circumcised. Or you could even talk about baptism. Anyone can get baptised. Does that make them a believer in Jesus? Does that make them safe? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. What's the evidence that we're saved? What's the evidence that we belong to God? Being filled with the Holy Spirit. However, that was Peter's experience. But there are a lot of others who clung to the old ways. And in the New Testament church, there's a group known as the Judaizers. And these people were very adamant. If you want to become a Christian, if you want to be one of God's people, well, it's necessary for you to become a Jew. And therefore, you have to be circumcised. And these people would travel throughout the land and they'd turn up at churches that, that Paul had established and they'd say to the people, oh, it's really good that you're following Jesus, but I think you might be missing something here. You need something else. Yes, I know you're already baptised, but you're missing something still. See, believing isn't enough. Being baptised isn't enough. You lot need to be circumcised. Oh, do we? I tell you what, Paul wouldn't stand for that. To bring in an extra requirement and to set up an extra barrier destroys what the gospel is. The gospel is a gracious act of God. All right? It's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we can um, get by satisfying certain requirements. So that's what's going on here. And that's why Paul is so harsh. He calls them dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. And there's a sense of urgency here. Watch out for them. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. You see, they weren't only mutilating the flesh, they were mutilating the gospel. And he says in verse three, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, even back in the Old Testament, the surgical procedure of circumcision, uh, although it's portrayed that way, that wasn't the defining thing of whether a person was in or whether they were out. It was merely an external sign of what God wanted to see in the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, reading from verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner 
giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. What's he describing here? He's not describing a physical thing. He's describing a matter of the heart. It's a pruning away of the flesh from the heart. It's a pruning away of the flesh that gets infected from the heart. And therefore, in Deuteronomy, he then went on to describe what it means. It meant to be a people who are just like God, who are just because God is just who are righteous because God is righteous. And there's a couple of specific examples given here. It's for the heart that God has for the widow and the fatherless and the sojourner. Sojourner, there's a word we don't use very often. When's the last time you used the word sojourner in a conversation? I actually know a fellow who's named his church, the Sojourner Church. Sojourners are those who are passing through a land that isn't their own, right? International travellers, but probably the best example of a sojourner today would be a refugee. Somebody who has had to flee their country because they couldn't be there anymore. And they come to another land, and when they land in another land, in most countries, they are the most vulnerable of people. They don't have a job. They don't have any rights. They don't have anything. And God's care is for the widow. God's care is for the orphan. God's care is for those who are the weakest in a society. And how should we respond to them? If they're hungry, give them something to eat. If they don't have clothing, give them clothes to wear. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, circumcision of the heart. I don't have this reading, Billy, I don't think. Circumcision of the heart is to admit guilt. It's to repent of sin and to turn back to God. And now Paul is saying that it's not those who have the surgical operation who are the circumcised. It's those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The key issue here isn't about doing good works or not doing good works. And the key issue isn't about keeping religious observances or not keeping religious observances. It's about whether we rely on these things or not. It's about whether we believe that by doing these things and by keeping these requirements, that it's gonna count in some way towards getting us saved. It's about believing whether these things are necessary for our salvation. And Paul gives us a bit of a testimony here. Before Paul was saved, he was known by another name, his Jewish name, Saul. And if anyone had reason for confidence in the flesh, as as Paul puts it, this bloke called Saul had more. He was a Jew through and through. He had the mark, he had the brand, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He had the heritage. He had the lineage. He he was of the tribe of Benjamin. It was one of the better tribes of Israel. Um, He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he describes himself. 
Did he keep the law? Too right he did. He was a Pharisee. Now, in the New Testament, the Pharisees generally get a pretty bad rap rap because they always seem to be at loggerheads with Jesus. But in reality, the Pharisees, they were a lay purity movement. They were so strict about keeping themselves pure for God. They kept all of the requirements of the written law. And, and it wasn't just an empty religion for Paul. You know how some people, yeah, they get, get a bit of religion. They might go to church on Sunday, but really, they got, it's just empty for them. They don't seem to have any passion for Jesus. They don't seem to have any get up and go for Jesus. They might just turn up at church, but they're not really serving. The, that wasn't the case with Paul. Paul was zealous for God. How zealous was he? Well, when these Christians started up, and what they're, they're worshipping this man that was crucified, cursed, hung on a tree. Well, they can't be any good, those Christians. And he saw it his duty. He was so zealous for God. He saw it his duty to hunt down those Christians and have them arrested and thrown into prison. And there's even a story there where he oversaw the execution of Stephen. I think it says he looked after the coats of the people who were throwing the stones as he oversaw this execution. And according to the law, he was blameless. He says that. And you think, oh, he couldn't have possibly. But no, according to the law, he was. And he's quite honest in saying that he was. Now, that doesn't mean that he never did anything wrong. But by the law, by the letter of the law, he was blameless. He lived a good life. He ticked all of the religious boxes and part of his religious observance would have been including the temple sacrifice and taking part in the Day of Atonement where his sins would be taken away from him and, and forgiven. And so by the law, he was righteous. By the law, he was blameless. Right, So if anybody ever had reason to rely on good works, if anybody ever had reason to rely on religious observances or on being zealous for God, as misdirected as it was, Paul had reason for that sort of confidence that he could be right with God. But here comes the kicker. Do you know what he says? But whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Right? Now, some of what he was, had done and some of the way that he had lived would have been a positive for him. You can't say that it wasn't a positive for him, that he was brought up um, to honour God. We can't say that it wasn't a positive for him to learn to live a righteous moral life. Some of it some of it was positive. But he says, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Right. So let's bring this forwards to today and to our culture. Now, from my experience, when it comes to people who aren't Christians but have some level of spiritual awareness. You, you know what I mean by that? Some people who aren't Christians just don't give God a second thought, but 
there are a lot of people out in the community who aren't Christians, but they have some kind of spiritual concept that one day there's going to be a day of judgment and I'm going to have to stand before some kind of God on that day. And from my, from my experience, when it comes to people like that, there's generally two lines that they take. And sometimes the lines can be a bit blurred and a bit commingled. The first line is the religious line, right? It, it's where there's no real heart relationship with Jesus, but they try to maintain some kind of religious connection and they maintain religious ceremonies that they feel they need to to fulfil all righteousness, right? They might have been baptised. They might have been confirmed. They might even go to church occasionally and they might even go to church every week. They might go to confession occasionally or, or, or have communion or, or mass or, or they might even be part of some other religion and think that they're ticking the box in that way. But they, fulfill, they feel that they've fulfilled all religious righteousness and therefore they'll be right with God because they've tried. Now, that's not very common anymore. I suspect in my parents' day, that would have been much more common. But it's still around today as well. Probably the more common path today, and I meet a lot of people who take this line, it's those who have no real heart relationship with God, but they feel that by living a good moral life, that's what's required. And when they sort of set the standard, somehow they always seem to be just above halfway past mark. Well, let me tell you, Paul ticked both of these boxes. He ticked the religious box and he ticked the good moral life box. You know what it was worth? Nothing. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But why? What's so bad about this stuff? What's so bad about being a bit religious? What's so bad about doing good things? Well, nothing, of course, unless that becomes the reason for our confidence. What Paul calls, calls confidence of the flesh. And it becomes a problem when these things, which, which are very good in themselves, are what prevent us from embracing the only true means of salvation. They're a problem when they keep us from responding to God in the way that he wants us to respond to him. Verse 8 says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing else matters. What does matter? Knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Do you know Jesus? Do you really, truly know Jesus? And do you know him as Lord? In Jeremiah chapter 9, God shows us the difference between knowing him and having an uncircumcised heart. Reading from verse 23. Thus says Yahweh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. 
Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised. And... All the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Why? Because they didn't understand God and they didn't know God. To know God is to follow God in all of his ways. He practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth. And those who know God, they do the same. And it delights God. Now I'm going to say something now which some people might find offensive and some find controversial. Some people are so militant on that we have to show that we're saved by grace and by grace alone that any suggestion that we should strive to obedient, be obedient to God and that we should strive to live according to God's precepts. They say, oh, that's just legalism and that's denial of grace and that's a heresy. And the message gets given that, that as Christians, we shouldn't be trying to be good and that God will just make us good. And I'm going to say quite bluntly, if that's your view of Jesus and the gospel, then you do not know Jesus. That's the Christianized version of having an uncircumcised heart. Because to know God is to know that God is just. It's to know that God is righteous and to therefore be just and righteous. You see, for us to know Jesus Christ involves us becoming like the one we know. And this isn't some kind of nameless God. It's not very politically correct these days to tell anybody that Jesus is the only way to be saved. But it's true. It mightn't be politically correct, but it's true. And that's why we Christians will always be accused of being intolerant. And that's why we'll always be accused of being exclusive. Oh, you Christians, you tell people that your, your way is the only way to God. Well, it is. And we can't change that message because if we did, then it wouldn't be true. We can't just choose which God it is that we want to worship as if it doesn't matter because it does matter. Jesus is the only one worth knowing. And we know him as Lord. That is probably one of the most misunderstood words in the Christian church today. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? 
You see, being a disciple of Jesus isn't just about saying the few magic words of the sinner's prayer and telling Jesus that I believe in him and, and, and then go off and live my life for myself. It's to know Jesus. It's to know Jesus as our own personal Lord. For Jesus to be Lord means that he's the king of kings. He is the boss. He is the master. I'm the servant. I'm the slave. And I submit my all to Jesus. We submit to the lordship of Jesus. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. We submit to Christ's lordship, to serve him, to live for him, to worship him. We no longer put ourselves first up the top of the tree on our list of priorities and then Jesus somewhere down in the mix. We put Jesus as number one, first and foremost in the whole of our lives and we, everything else we do in our lives, we do in submission to Jesus. Now, for some, that might sound like a terrible cost. Who'd have thought there was a cost to being a disciple of Jesus? You see, the gospel that gets preached in some churches isn't the gospel at all. It's just believe that Jesus died for your sins and you're saved. That is such an anemic version of the gospel. Paul said in verse 8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What did Paul lose? Pretty much everything. When he started out, he was in a position of, of respect and authority. He had people under him and they'd go off doing persecuting the church. But then when Paul met Jesus on that road to Damascus, everything changed. He stopped being the one who was doing the persecuting. He became the one who was getting persecuted. And eventually he was executed for Jesus. But even so, even as a Christian, it wasn't Paul's own efforts for Jesus and it wasn't even his own suffering for Jesus that earned him a place in God's good books. Uh, I thought about this after I wrote this. He, he actually literally got a place in God's good book, didn't he? Eh? Yeah. But it, Paul says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, before Paul became a disciple of Jesus, he put his very best efforts into following and keeping the law. Um, so some of you might be questioning, okay, what, what law are we talking about? Um, we're talking about what the theologians call the Mosaic Law. Now, 
The mosaic law doesn't mean it involved a whole heap of coloured pebbles set in cement on the floor, because that's what a mosaic is. It's the law that Moses recorded, okay? The, the law of Moses is the mosaic law. And it included the Ten Commandments, but it included a lot more than that. A lot of the Jewish religious and cleanliness laws were the mosaic law. And whilst by his very best efforts, he tried to keep these laws, it still wasn't good enough. And as one commentary I read put it, on the final day when he stands before God, he doesn't want to be found clinging to his inadequate righteousness. And that's why Jesus came. Because I have sinned, I deserve to die. But Jesus took that punishment for me. He took the punishment that I deserve when he died on the cross. And by having faith in Jesus, God acquits me of my sin. He says, yes, that earns death, but my son has paid that penalty. Therefore, you are acquitted and he declares me righteous. And so Paul is not clinging on to his own efforts of being good and being religious. He knows that these things are not what's going to make him righteous before God. Because the only thing that will make him righteous before God is knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. And he's trusting in God's willingness to consider him acquitted because of Christ's death on the cross. Do you understand what this is saying? I'll give you an example from me. Michael Brumpton has been a terrible, terrible human being. When perfect behaviour and a perfect attitude before God is the only acceptable standard, did I live up to that? No. I have failed miserably. Michael Brumpton's personal righteousness is pathetic. In fact, the, the only one who ever lived a perfectly sinless life is Jesus Christ. And so if I depend on my own righteousness when that's the standard up there, I score an epic fail. But as with Paul, we count everything else as rubbish for the joy of knowing Christ. And so by faith, the righteousness of Jesus becomes ours. But what sort of faith? It's a believing faith. It's a trusting faith. It's a faith where I bow to Jesus as Lord. It's, it's a faith that lives for Jesus. It's a faith that follows Jesus. It's faith that is demonstrated by obedience. By faith, the righteousness of Jesus becomes ours. What does that gain us? Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Ooh, that's interesting. Okay, so 
by having faith in Jesus, we've earned this great thing. What is this great thing we've earned? We've gained? What have we gained? Well, most of us are really, we find it in verse 10. And most of us are very happy. Oh, I'll take the first half of verse 10. Woohoo! Yes, what a joy it is to share in the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Does anyone say amen? <laughs> amen. Hallelujah. Yes, what a joy it is to share in the resurrection of Jesus. But what about the next bit? Sharing his suffering? Sharing his death? And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Remember Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The pinnacle of our lives is actually when we get to the end of them. When we die and get to go to be with Jesus. But to live is Christ. Because Jesus is Lord, and an unbeliever probably won't get this. I'm hoping you guys do get it. But when we know Christ, it is an honour and it is a joy to suffer for Christ. And Paul's saying, I'll suffer even to death. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, every generation of Christians hope that they're going to be the ones who are alive when Jesus returns. Christians have been hoping that for the last couple of thousand years. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day when Jesus is going to return. But when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will be raised and we'll all be caught up together with him. But until the day that Jesus returns, every generation so far up until now, and maybe even our own generation, we don't know, are going to have to die to attain the resurrection. Right? It's just a simple fact. And of course, if we're going to die, most of us have the preference of how we'd like to die, wouldn't we? Right. Most of us would probably like to get old and, and die healthy and peacefully in our sleep. How many people actually get that? I don't know. Maybe it's a blessing, maybe it's not. But, but I suspect that Paul's got a pretty fair idea that he's about to be executed. He's about to be martyred for following Jesus. And that's okay with him. Now, some of us might have a bit of trouble grasping this. How we die, that's not the greatest problem for us. Because to die is the path to be with Christ. Paul says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Right? He's saying... It doesn't matter how I die. It doesn't matter whether I have a terrible death or whatever. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Epaphrodites. Epaphrodites got crook and he almost died. We don't know what sickness he had. Some people think, oh, it's a terrible, terrible thing for a Christian to die of a disease. Well, they didn't see it as that. They saw it as this was the cost of Epaphrodites following Jesus. He actually said that. He actually said for, for following Christ. In obedience to Christ and in serving Christ, he almost died. And that was a sickness. Righto. To finish up, I just, and I'm seriously, I am finishing. I'm not, I'm not doing the Paul thing and saying finally and only halfway through. But to finish up, I want to come back to the key sentence that we began with. 
the joy of knowing Christ as Lord. Until we know Christ, we won't understand the joy. And, and to know Christ isn't just knowing about Christ. Yeah, we might learn about Christ in Sunday school. We might learn about Christ in church. We might learn about Christ by listening to some messages or whatever. We might learn about Christ by reading our Bibles. But to know Christ is a different matter altogether. And faith isn't just about believing about him. Yes, this is about a deep personal relationship, but it's a relationship of trust and obedience and even suffering for Christ. Do you hear what I'm saying? These weren't empty words when Paul said, we are the circumcision. He's talking about how we are the ones who have had the flesh pruned away from our heart. We are the ones who have a heart yielded to God. We are the ones who have a heart filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can worship in the Spirit and glory in Christ. What a joy. Now, we could talk about this for hours more yet. There is so much more in that passage, but we're going to stop there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we offer you ourselves today for Jesus to be our Lord. We don't want Jesus just to be Lord in name, but in reality. We yield ourselves to you. We give you our all. Lord, in so many ways in the past, we've put our trust in our own religious acts. We put our trust in our own good deeds, as if we've thought that these things might save us or that they might in some way help our cause. But we know, Lord, that that is so wrong and that the only way to be righteous is to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, what, what a joy it is to know you and what a joy it is to know you as Lord. Lord, Forgive me for all of my sins. I thank you that by faith, the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all unrighteousness. And by faith, I'm acquitted of my sins. And by faith, we receive the righteousness of Christ. And now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, help us to live in your righteousness as we obediently follow Jesus all the days of our lives, no matter what the cost, that we may attain the resurrection from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.